Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it's my honor to be joined today by Laura Hubbard, Vice President of Finance and Administration at the University at Buffalo. Welcome, Laura. I'm glad to be here and glad to be with you, Megan. Well, we're going to jump right in and pick your brain on some important issues today, Laura. So would you just start off by sharing your thoughts about the issues you think will most impact the way colleges and universities conduct business in the next 10 years? It's a it's a meaty question, so I appreciate you jumping right in. Yeah, very meaty question for sure. I, I think, you know, when I when I look into my crystal ball and think about the future, I, I think the key issue now and into the future is really around who gets access to higher education and how they get that access. And then how we understand the impacts of those options and choices. Um, I I feel like we're at a crossroads where, and actually there was a, a recent article in the Chronicle that touched on this. Um, education is increasingly vital to not only individual opportunity, but success um, in society and societal progress. However, at the same time, there are increasing challenges in getting a college education and increasing disparities in who gets access. I mean, all we have to do is look to the presidential debates and there's a policy debate around, you know, really whether college education is a private good or a public good. And again, what it costs and um, who's advantaged or disadvantaged in, in getting their foot in the door, so to speak. And I should say, I'm a, I'm a first generation college student and that's why I do what I do. I, I believe in the transac- uh, transformational power of higher education. I know as I talk with my colleagues, um, I think there are a fair number of us in that boat that, you know, we're, we're in higher education because we know uh, how it's impacted our lives and we want to pay it forward. Um, so I very much believe in that transformational power. And I think education is a very powerful currency. So I see this as a really vital issue. And as you, as you look at demographics, increase, there are going to be more first-generation um, uh, college students coming our way. Um, so I think uh, for institutions to, to figure this out, um, but it, it ties in with you know public funding as well. Um, that was something that Chronicle article focused on the the relative, you know, buying power, so to speak, of Pell Grants isn't what it used to be. So I think it's more challenging for lower income students to get an education uh, without having to go into debt. So I think, you know, chief business officers are really key players in this uh societal policy uh, question and direction because we understand the value of education. 
not only literally, but <laughs> going back to what I said, uh, what it what it adds to our lives. And we understand the cost structures and the revenue structures that come to bear when people are, are trying to come to our institutions. So I think we're in a key position to help navigate through this very complex uh, societal question. Sounds like chief business officers are going to have to be even more creative and scrappy than you already are. <laughs> yes, definitely scrappy is is a, a job qualification we all need. <laughs> Although I've never seen that on a job. <laughs> Not written. Book. It's unspoken. It, it should, really should mm-hmm. be. Uh, I think they use different language for that. But, um, uh, but yes, I, I think you know, and like I said, there these are really complex um, issues, um, and there's no sort of easy answer. But I think figuring this out, uh, I remember actually a Nakubo annual meeting. Oh gosh, going back several years ago now, uh, in the research universities roundtable, that was our discussion. What is a sustainable, you know, business model for a research university going forward? And we talked about, you know, the relative, you know, what the model you know, for public higher education used to be and how that has changed, um, especially around not only federal funding, but also state funding, if you're a, a state public. Again, complex issues, and but it's really a question around is, you know, higher education, is it really a, a private good or a public good? That's sort of a philosophical and, and like I said, societal question. And we really have to figure out the answer to that because we can... You know, we can come up with budget models and business models that will that will pencil out, but they may not comport with what what our society thinks we should be doing. And like I said, who gets access to higher education? How do you think current CBOs like yourself can best prepare or develop the next generation of higher education leadership? We talked about being scrappy. Um <laughs> particularly when you're considering um, the growing desire to diversify the field and maybe some of the things you just talked about um, about concerning access. Uh, maybe we should have agility tests for Love it. Let's do <laughs> a it. business officer. <laughs> so, you know, one thing I think about in this area is I, I think um, we do a lot around um, how I would think about it is uh, developing functional experts. So if I, if I think about you know, business officers across the university, we often focus professional development on helping them become better in the functional areas that they, they work in. And I will say, you know, part of uh, how I'm going to answer your question here uh, ties into some of my experience in that prior to being a chief business officer, I have been a unit business officer, both in an academic and an administrative unit. And then I've worked in central offices as well. So when I talk about business officers, generally, I I think about all of those roles uh, across the university. Mm-hmm. And if you think about somebody coming into a chief business officer role, really a lot of what you're doing is for your own division. Most of us are integrating different functions across a very diverse landscape. You know, commonly you have everything from you know, the police department to finance, you know, to facilities, to human resources. So, you know, having the skills to think broadly across, you know, how do you integrate what each of those functional areas are doing into a common goal? But even more broadly than that, it's really how are you partnering with your colleagues across organizational lines to help them be successful? I I think 
commonly, again, we will develop our folks in their functional area, but maybe we don't focus as much on how are we helping them develop. Again, the terminology I would use around it is going beyond developing functional experts to developing institutional leaders. So, you know, some things just as an examples that, you know, we've, we've focused on here is um, we had a few years ago, we went through a process where we wanted to better integrate, talking about the, the uh, business model for higher ed, uh, we wanted to better integrate what was happening in our enrollment planning and enrollment management areas with our financial planning. And so we decided to put together a steering committee and then some some groups working underneath that steering committee to to do a bunch of different projects that would integrate in with that. We involved our unit business officers in that. So they were on, you know, some of those groups and worked side by side with central office folks from the enrollment area and from the financial areas, uh, both controller and the budget office. Giving our business officers opportunities like that where we engage them in uh, institutional initiatives and institutional projects. I know when I was a a unit business officer, you know, I'd raise my hand and volunteer (laughs) to to work on things. And that's how I got a lot of the experience um, that helped me, you know, come into this role. So I think uh, offering those opportunities, uh, you know, another example, I put together a group um, to manage our utilities budget. In the past, before I came here, it just been the facilities group who had responsibility for the utilities budget. But I put a group together uh, with, again, people from the budget office, from the controllers area, from facilities, both in the financial office there, as well as the uh, chief facilities officer. Uh, my facilities officer tells me that's her favorite meeting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, beyond just managing and projecting the utilities budget, which there have been a lot of benefits that have come out of having that group uh, doing that together. My intention was really giving the financial folks exposure to learning more about facilities and things that they have to do operationally. And likewise, um, giving the facilities um, staff and leaders exposure to what financial people think about. Um, So I, I think, you know, Doing that cross-functional development um, is something, you know, that we can do. And I think also literally thinking outside the box and being very intentional when we're doing hiring. So we had um, an opportunity here a couple of years ago where we had uh, some unit business officer vacancies in a couple of our academic areas and at least one administrative area. And so we talked about doing a, a pooled recruitment instead of every individual dean or vice president doing their own recruitment, that we would do them um, jointly. And so that meant we all had to agree on what the qualifications uh, (laughs) were that we were looking for. And it was very interesting because a couple of the deans came in, in with very prescriptive ideas about, you know, what qualifications someone had to have. And as we talked through it, you know, we we said, well, why don't we focus really on what, you know, what are you wanting this person to do? What are the knowledge, skills, and abilities they need to have in order to do that work? And let's focus more on that as opposed to how they got there. As I like to say, there are many paths to enlightenment. So (laughs) let's focus on the, what you want them to be able to do, not how they learn to be able to do that. Um, And, you know, I, I, 
I said, you know, let's be open to people who don't come from higher education, right. you know, even in an academic unit. And I shared some examples from my past on, on uh, how we'd done that and how they'd worked out. And I think as we talked through that, um, everyone agreed to, okay, let's, we agreed, you know, jointly to what the qualifications were. So for example, you know, we didn't require an accounting degree or even a business degree. We just required a degree, you know. <laughs> I mean, my bachelor's degree is in journalism. So, uh, and it was very interesting then, the results. Um, we ended up hiring out of the four hires that came out of that pool. We hired one internal person, so somebody who was already a unit business officer, moved from one area to another. We hired one external person, that came from higher ed, but they were outside our university. And then two external people without higher ed experience. So they came in mm. uh, from corporate. And um, all of them are doing very well. And their senior leaders are very happy with them. So I, I think that helped give, especially the deans, you're coming to an, into an academic area very legitimately. You know, people want someone who understands you know, what we're trying to accomplish academically, but you don't necessarily have to currently be in higher education to be able to do that. Right. So that was the conversation that we had. So again, I think, you know, being able to think less prescriptively right. about, you know, the what we're looking for in terms of the inputs as opposed to mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. what people are, <clears throat> excuse me, able to do. Laura, speaking now not only to folks that are already CBOs and in CBO roles, but also listeners who might be considering a, a career path as a CB, CBO, um, what would you say are the top three skills or attributes that are most critical for CBOs in today's higher higher ed landscape, as well as all of the things we've been talking about. And we've already uh, said that you have to be scrappy and you're going to have to pass an agility test. But beyond that, what would you say are some of the skills or attributes are most important? Sure. Um, so I think definitely a, a key one for me is um, the ability to communicate effectively. And um, to drill into that a little bit uh, deeper, you know, I think what are things that chief business officers need to be able to do? Definitely a, a key area is to be able to convey our ideas. Um, and often, you know, sometimes we have to be salespeople. Mm. <laughs> so um, so we, we sell ideas a lot of times, both internally and externally. And we have to share a lot of complex information. Mm -hmm. So I know something I, I do mentoring with, uh, with our folks is, you know, how do we break down very complex information into very relatable things that, that, you know, people can understand? You're talking about a bond issue, you know, related to your home mortgage or something like that. So getting out of some of the tech speak and making things relatable for our audiences. Another reason communication is key is oftentimes, we're having challenging conversations. And so being able to do that in a in a positive way and an empowering way. So not just talking about what some challenges might be, but helping, you know, others think through, you know, what are solutions or uh, what are things that we can do to manage through those things. So I think being able to do that is uh, really important and being comfortable with difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we're in roles where, you know, we're asked to do that or we need to do that. So I think being comfortable with doing that is is a really important skill set um, to have. 
and the ability to be a storyteller. Again, um, taking that complex information, being able to relate it to to faculty or other leadership or students um, to explain the finances or our capital plans or whatever um, you may be talking about. And then finally, in communication area, listening. Yeah, is I saved the best for last. <laughs> listening mm-hmm. is really important. Uh, there's a Chinese proverb that says to listen well is as powerful a means of influence as to talk well and is as essential to true conversation. And I think that's that's really true. So being able to listen. And then that kind of ties into the second thing that I think is important, which is cultural competency really in its broadest sense. Someone asked me once, I think it was an ACE fellow that was here, you know, what academic degree is important to the CBO position? And I'm sure they were expecting me to say something like accounting or business. And what I said was cultural anthropology. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. Um, Because I think the ability to understand cultures and subcultures, it's your institution and how to relate to them and engage with them um, is really important. Um, being a student of your university and, you know, sitting down, I'll like going to, we have an event here where we honor our SUNY distinguished faculty. So I will go to that dinner and just talk with the faculty who are sitting uh, next to me about their programs and what they do outside of their faculty job. So I think the more we can engage, you know, with the campus community and really understand, you know, universities are complex places culturally. So um, I think the ability to understand organizational cultures and be able to move them forward is a, is a second one I, I would offer. And then finally, I think self-awareness and self-management is a key one. So again, these are their rewarding jobs, but they can be challenging at times. So the ability to manage your health and wellness, I think, is important. The ability to read your environment and listen to it and act on what you hear, um, to be responsive to criticisms and also to have the courage to confront your own biases and assumptions about things. You know, we all have them. So and to uh, own up to your mistakes or missteps, you know, to be able to do that and have a healthy sense of humor uh, is the other part of self-awareness <laughs> and self-management. I mean, um, my humor has gotten me through many, many situations. <laughs> so I can't imagine doing this job without a healthy sense of humor. Um, so uh, I just think uh, those are the three I would pick, you know, communication, cultural competence and self-awareness. Laura, I'm going to ask you to reflect back on your time as a CBO now and tell us what you'd consider to be your most fabulous failure or just a lesson that you learned along the way um, and maybe a little bit about that situation, what you what you learned and took forward with it. So uh, I was actually on a panel uh, almost exactly a year ago <laughs> where we got to talk about fabulous failures. Um, <laughs> Everyone and, loves talking uh, about their failures. I know I thought, who picked this topic? Um, so, <laughs> and one thing I shared and I'll, I'll share again is I don't, you know, as I think about um, uh, my career, I, I don't usually use the F word, as I'm I like sure, to say. I'm sure. Um, I'll talk about mistakes and things of that nature. We all, we all make them. So, um, but in the, if I had to think about, and I, one reason for that is I think the word failure, it seems cataclysmic Mm, in some mm -hmm, way. So, mm -hmm. um, but if I think about a fabulous failure, I'll use the same one I did in in that venue. 
Um, so uh, in a different role that I had uh, earlier in my career, um, there was a situation, it was really an institutional fabulous failure. Um, so uh, without going into the detail, it, it did lead to a complete turnover in the university administration. There were multiple lawsuits that were involved and, um, you know, criminal investigation. So it was, it was a, a big situation. Yeah. Uh, the VP I reported to was, you know, one of the figures in, in that. So I was actually asked to come in and uh, kind of manage basically the, the business aspects around things that had gone wrong there. Um, so sort of the way I've described that was like the turnaround specialist. Um, <laughs> um, and one of our attorneys uh, used to call me the walking pinata. So I, I sort of went, I went from meeting to meeting with angry people and listened oh gosh, <laughs> about that. what they were angry about, uh, which was the anger was very justified. Sure. So, so one thing, you know, I learned from that is that, you know, sometimes a fabulous failure, it doesn't even have to be your failure, mm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, um, but you still, I think even just being part of cleaning it up, you know, I, at a certain extent, you end up owning that failure. You know, if you want to use the term guilt by association, that would be a good way to think about it as well. So, you know, I knew going into that, you know, I probably, you know, once I had finished doing that work, as we agreed to, you know, I might be doing something else. <laughs> so, um, so I really spent, um, some time thinking about, well, what do I want to do after this? And one, you know, great thing about that is it was very freeing, meaning um, there are some difficult decisions that needed to be made to sort of deal with what had happened. And so I felt very free to do that. I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't sort of trying to politic for the long-term job or something like that. So, um, so I think it, that was a very, freeing aspect of it. And I think it was a great process to sit and think about. I mean, I, I literally went from, well, do I want to stay in higher education? Do I want to do something else? I literally kind of ran the gamut. Yeah. Some days I thought, maybe I want to go back to being a budget analyst. That looks really attractive right now. <laughs> but, uh, um, so at the at the end of that uh, sort of thought process, I ended up deciding, no, I, I really, I, I do enjoy what I, I'm doing. And uh, I want to keep doing that, you know, at least for the next five years, and then I'll, I'll think about it again. So again, I, it's just sort of created a different way of thinking about my career that I think has been very, very helpful. Um, at the same time, you know, that was years ago. I'm, I'm still, you know, doing the same work. So, um, but I think just the thought process of thinking about why I was doing what I was doing, and hey, I'm not bound to this. I could do something else. Um, was uh, was a great process to go through. And one thing I definitely learned from that situation, I would say, not only thinking about my own experience through it, but others as well, I think it really underscored to me that it's really more how we process and react to our circumstances that's often more important, you know, in our future than the circumstances there themselves. So, you know, that that wasn't a very fun situation, <laughs> but um, there were definitely positive things I, I took away from it and definitely a lot of things I, I learned from it that, you know, helped, have helped me um, in my career uh, since then. And it really also underscored to me how, um, how really important uh, organizational culture is and how it can really have a, a positive or negative influence on what happens at an institution and on individuals. So, um, so that's something that 
is always top of mind for me. And, and it helps me have conversations with my colleagues at times, you know, in certain situations. So, you know, thinking about failure more generally or mistakes or whatever, <laughs> over the course of my career, I think, you know, I have a friend who says I have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to guess many CBOs uh, have that. Uh, so I think over the course of my career, I've learned to be more... Um, more comfortable with um, trying things that don't work out. So in my current role, you know, I'll talk a lot with, um, you know, my folks about, well, hey, let's try this. You know, we, we talk about inspir- experimentation, you know, let's try this and let's see how it works out. And then we'll debrief about it and say, okay, what worked and what didn't work. And then, you know, we'll fine tune from there. So uh, I think that's a healthy way of thinking about things because if you're too afraid to fail, you're not trying things. So, well, thank you, Laura, for sharing some of your insights and experiences with our listeners today. Yes, thank you again. I, I enjoyed uh, enjoyed uh, thinking about these things, and uh, it's an exciting time to be in higher education. And um, again, I, I just think it's um, what we do is is just very important to individual people and to our society. So, I'm happy to be doing this work. You can find out more about Laura and today's episode by visiting the education section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you also subscribe to CBO Speaks in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Laura and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. Mm-hmm.